Hello. I believe the first thing we should do is address the elephant in the room, that I am not Danny Martin. <laughs> I am Ed Gallo, in fact. I know it's hard to tell by the tone of my voice that I'm the not fuck Danny. Is Danny Martin? Uh, he, he's our deceased friend, uh, formerly of the flight site. Now, Danny, uh, Dan, he changed his name to Dan. He's Dan Martin now. Uh, has uh, formally retired from being a combat sports fan and analyst. I'm not joking, actually. He, uh, he's got a really big year ahead of him. He's become a firefighter and an EMT and pursuing his dreams and doing all, all that good stuff, saving lives. So uh, as much as we really, really enjoy making fun of Dan all the time, uh, <laughs> genuinely wish him the best and, and we were keeping in touch with him and he's our good buddy and we really thank him for his contributions to the site and to you know the whole analytical sphere. Really, he's come up with some really amazing stuff. The metagame pieces are going to live on for a long time and uh, yeah, he, he's just contributed a lot to the discussion and we've had a really great time with him. But uh, for now, for now, he's gone. Um so here I am to, to plug in that hole for sure. Um, just love plugging your holes, boy. Uh, I've never heard of him, but he sounds really cool. Shouts to Danny Martin. Yeah, shouts to Dan. And uh, Ryan's also here, but Ryan, you don't want to be a permanent co-host of the MMA podcast, or, or you do? Either one's fine. Glad we're, we're banging this out on air. But yeah, yeah, yeah. All, all guests <laughs> are now and again, but not maybe not as a regular thing. Cool, man. And so of course, I'm your usual. Your yeah, so, go for it. Uh, yeah, Danny is out doing more important things and watch shirtless men fight on air. So that's what I will be covering for the foreseeable future with Ed. Yes, he is the shirtless man now as a firefighter. The calendar oh, yeah, is going to be true. sick. All he's going to be fighting is fire. <laughs> uh, yeah, so welcome back to the first start setting my house on fire just to lure Danny. <laughs> He'll have to come visit me. He could have called. <laughs> Uh, yeah, this is the first edition of the MMA podcast since like October or something. So that's nice. something. Yeah, I've been very on top of this for good reason because the fights have been, the cards have been either very good or very bad, but the very good ones being like two of them and the very bad ones being like 17. So we have a lot to talk about. Most importantly, probably is a Patreon request from uh, one of our patrons, obviously. Yeah, Ask about the best. That? You were totally going to say his name and then just forgot it. His name yeah, is was... Evan Lee, and he's a yeah. relatively newer patron. He's been very active, so shouts to Evan. Yeah, thanks for subscribing, Evan, and we're handling this at the very end of the month that you subscribed, I believe. So we are very on top of this, as I mentioned before. It's about the best unathletic fighters in the UFC, so we're going to cover that probably at the end because there's actually a good deal to talk about since we left everything off uh, this last couple of months. So... To start out, I guess the last two pay-per-view main events were kind of lumped together. Figueredo versus Perez and Figueredo versus Moreno. Probably the fight of the year in there. A very bad decision, in my opinion. And, of course, the guillotine over our favorite Dana White Contender Series person. So, uh, Ed, what did you think? I mean, we did cover the, um, the Perez fight, like a preview on the panel thing. So, you guys yeah. should probably go check that out. But what did you think after that fight? Yeah, we talked a little bit about the, the after as well on the, uh, on the second panel for the um, for that for that card yeah but for those who don't listen to our amazing panels which you're making a mistake because they're very good uh and they have more people on them so even if you don't like either of us there there are more people to like um but yeah the Perez fight was a, a big letdown for me just because I thought Perez looked much improved and like he was had a winning game plan cooked up uh was was kicking in combination really well attacking uh Figueredo's body uh 
just being really aggressive. And then when he got to his shots, he was getting to that, uh, that seatbelt, uh, like rear standing position really easily. And it looked like he was going to be able to wrestle him a good bit. And now in hindsight, after seeing all the success that Brandon Moreno had taking him down with body locks over and over again, I'm like, man, he really probably could have took him down a bunch of times. And his top game is way better than Moreno's. So uh, I really thought we were going to see uh, something good happening there. Some uh, maybe Perez putting a ride on him, but uh, yeah, from that, uh, from that seatbelt position, I think, uh, well, first Figueredo, he uh, he sat back into a leg lock, but I think at some point he, he reached behind to get the neck, and I was like, whatever, uh, that guillotine's not in. I'm not worried about that. And then he kept it, and he elevated, and he got his guard back. And then even when he had his guard uh, and Perez was sitting up, I'm like, he still doesn't have this because I could see so much of Perez's neck, and that's usually a sign that's not actually doing anything. It's not like cutting anything off. Uh, so I don't know what kind of choke it was, like if it was like actually cutting off blood or if it was just crushing his neck or whatever. Uh, but he tapped him with that. And that was really sad for me. It was like crazy impressive because Figueredo was just an animal. Um, and he, clearly he knows what he's doing with that, that he could force that. But I mean, that sucked for me. I saw him that really likes Perez, although I did expect Figueredo to win. But if I thought Figueredo was going to win, I thought it would be because Perez like, couldn't wrestle him or if he was like, getting pieced up standing i didn't think it would go down like that specifically so uh disappointing because that, that was looking like a really good fight right away but you know we got more more figurado content right afterwards so it's not not a huge loss yeah uh ryan your thoughts i mean i remember you said some very smart things about perez after the fight so yeah i i don't really have too many thoughts that ed didn't already uh elaborate on i was I was also disappointed that the fight ended so early. I was really interested in how the matchup was going to shake out. Um, yeah, Fig, Fig's dynamism is the main story of that fight. I think Perez was doing doing all the right things. Uh, he was getting in on his takedown setups well, and the, that single leg that he held for a while and then eventually chain wrestled to a finish was really impressive. And then Fig just shocked him with the guillotine. Uh, and it was a really slick one too. I, I forget exactly what situation they were in, but... Um, he kind of like turned to expose his back a little bit. And then when um, Perez, instead of like going over to a ride or going to his back, he was kind of trying to come on top and then Fig used that to turn into him and get that head and arm grip right away. Uh, really impressive there. And yeah, I'd like to see them fight some at some other point down the line, but Perez needs, needs to get quite a bit more on his resume before he's ready for another fight there. I think he could still do well against Figueroa. I thought it was a close fight coming into that. And what happened didn't really necessarily change my opinion of that because it was kind of just a, a shock finish. But at the same time, it kind of makes you makes me hesitant to wonder whether Perez would be able to just avoid getting sparked out randomly in a rematch. Yeah, I mean, I think... Obviously, it ended with the wrestling and the grappling, so that takes like a majority of it. But I think the striking exchanges were pretty interesting, uh, just you know, considering how long the fight went, which was like a minute. Um, Figueredo, he we saw against Moreno, especially how smart he could be in using his power to limit a more volume, like minute winner type fighters. And he was smashing Perez's body from the opener with the hard open side body kicks and uh, the left hook to the body from close stance. So that's something that if the fight went longer, I think Perez probably would have had trouble enforcing any kind of volume edge. But yeah, as I'd mentioned, the fact that Moreno was able to pretty much body lock Figueredo at will uh, says some good things about a, a Formiga rematch if that ever happens, but it shouldn't. 
and about a potential Perez rematch if Perez can go away. Or maybe you shot, man. Just let it go. No, no, I will not. <laughs> Shut up. But I mean, he's released anyway, and he's never coming back. But yeah, uh, it says some good things about Perez's chances as well. Still, as, uh, it's still real to Saram. God damn it. We're talking about unathletic fighters later, so we have to keep the gimmick. But Formiga is as unathletic as ever and would also be Figueredo 10 out of 10. Fuck you. But <laughs> yeah, so Figueredo seemed to have a good idea of what he was doing against Perez on the feet, but Perez also had a good idea with the kicking game on the outside and uh, generally just trying to deny the pocket for Figueredo. He was getting pressured reasonably easily, but he also used that to uh, get in on his takedown when Figueredo did his usual you know, stupid swinging thing he does sometimes. So, yeah, it was an interesting fight that I'd like to see again. I think Perez is probably, and it, this might be a controversial opinion, like in the broader scheme of things, I think he's pretty comfortably a top three-ish uh, flyweight at this point, just because I think Moreno gave Figueredo a better fight, but I'm also not particularly sure how Moreno would do against someone like Perez. And honestly, Moreno might be broken after that fake fight, if that's very possible. So... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting fight. And I guess that segues right into Figueredo cutting weight again since he took no damage and fighting Brandon Moreno. So I guess, uh, I guess I'll start on this one. Figueredo won that fight very, very clearly, in my opinion. Uh, probably, like, even with the point deduction, he didn't really deserve to lose it. He won uh, four, maybe five rounds. I, don't, I remember round four being reasonably close and then Moreno having the biggest moment. But either way, that was a pretty clear fig win, and it being a draw is just another uh, thing in the long annals of UFC judging and competence. But it was an interesting fight, and um, Figueredo, as, as I mentioned against Perez, Figueredo did a really, really nice job limiting the volume of Moreno just with his pressure and his counterpunching, especially to the body. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I'll turn it over to Ed for elaborating on that. Yeah, I... Um... I don't totally remember all the details of their of their striking exchanges, so I won't speak too much on that. Um, although it was <laughs> disconcerting uh, as the fight got longer and things got a little messier. You had Fig like completely turning his back, like breaking his stance and like looking away and getting hit super clean while while all those things were occurring and like not being that bothered. So his chin is unreal and his cardio is a lot better than people expected. Um, so those are some things that definitely stuck out. Um, I watched it live with Shreeram. We did commentary on it. That's on our Patreon if you want to check that out. And uh, I, we, we both agreed about the scoring. Uh, and while it was happening, we also were both saying, like, oh, man, I can definitely see how the judges uh, would get this one wrong. Uh, and they did. So <laughs> that's, a, that's a fair assumption. But the thing that was really bothering me about this fight uh, was Figueredo not knowing what to do about body locks. Um, he was swinging yeah. big, which is how uh, Moreno was getting a lot of those entries, but he kept going double overhooks to counter the double unders, but he wasn't doing anything with his feet and he wasn't really using the double overhooks. He was just standing up straight and letting Moreno you know, move him around and get his angle to finish it. Um, I don't know why if he thought he was going to do something else, if he had some other plans, but you got to get your hips back. You got to create some sort of separation. You got to pummel at least. Uh, at the very least, you got to get your hips back because you're probably going to get body locked right away if someone gets a quick entry on you and you don't bring your hips back. So that really irked me because it happened a bunch of times and like at least once to show the, the adaptation there. And uh, Moreno didn't really get a lot done on top in any of the rounds as far as I remember. But, you know, just in terms of uh, optics, it's always a bad look for judges to get taken down multiple times in a round. Uh, and that's been a theme with kind of bad decisions over, over the years 
is the people that got the, the not not the close rounds, but the rounds that were kind of controversial that went the other way. There was usually a takedown or two in there that didn't really end up being anything. Uh, so you just to be a person that wins fights in 2020, uh, you have to be someone that can defend most types of takedowns, or at least like if they throw it at you five times, you had to defend it a couple of those times. And he looked pretty hopeless uh, in that space. And that was really disappointing to me just because I, I would like our champions uh, to not be inept in any, in any spaces. So maybe it's just a really specific thing, but it's looking like uh, Figs wrestling is turning more and more into like a counter type of game rather than sticking to the fundamentals and, you know, fighting grips and, you know, getting his hips in the right place and, and doing all the things you would want him to do. Yeah, the, the body locks happened in the Formiga fight too. Um, and that seemed to be a persistent weakness for him. I thought his single leg defense in the Perez fight looked pretty much fine. He was wizarding and I think he fought grips if I remember correctly. But the body lock thing just seems to be like a weird just gap. So I'm not sure if he'll be able to patch that up or if that'll just be a consistent thing where guys can then find the body lock entry when they want it and get him down. But his recovery on the ground did look very good, and Moreno couldn't do much on top. It's ne- like you said, it's never a good look for the judges, and not everybody is like that. Like you can't just dy- dynamism your way off the bottom all the time. There's going to be guys who can hold you down. There's going to be guys who can catch sub- submissions in transition or scramble with you to keep you on the mat. As for the striking, yeah, I thought I agree that it was not a good decision. I don't see much of a case for giving Moreno anything but the fourth round. Uh, they he was competitive in some of the rounds, but Figueroa was clearly landing the much harder, cleaner strikes with more impact. I think a lot of this goes to um, judges and fans not really scoring body shots well. Fig was really just destroying his body, landing clean, hard, murderous body shots that had a clear, immediate impact on Moreno. And Moreno was working the body too, but they they were very clearly not the same. Moreno would throw like a slapping lead hook to the body and kind of like often land with the inside of his fist or his wrist where Figueroa was pounding him with the knuckles and you could see the impact like immediately from just watching it collide with Moreno's body and you could see the impact on Moreno's face there was quite a few times where Fig would land a big body shot and Moreno would screw his face up or his posture would immediately change and you could tell that the body shots were doing serious damage there Um, as for the striking exchanges how they played out technically I haven't watched the fight since it happened, so I don't have too detailed thoughts on that. But I think the most impressive part of the fight for both guys was the adjustments they made. Um, Figueroa, increasingly as the fight went on, found the range on his counters and figured out how to take Moreno's shots away from him. He started increasingly countering the jab, used that bodywork to take away Moreno's entries. And Moreno, he wasn't having as much success in the counter. And that was a bit of a problem because he was forced onto the back foot. So Figueroa was able to limit his volume somewhat through pressure and through body work. Uh, and that's kind of like the, the big issue with Moreno when he's fighting Figueroa is that he's really a pace fighter. He needs those exchanges and to push a pace. But Figueroa is able to limit his pace and volume through, through that pressure. And Moreno isn't really the kind of fighter who's able to deny exchanges or who's able to operate really effectively on the outside. Uh, and I think that would be what Fig struggles the most with. So Marino, if he's fighting Figueroa, he has to be exchanging with him to win. And he kind of lacks some of the defense necessary to do that safely. And it's always going to be hard to, to pick against Figueroa on exchanges. But Marino did do a good job kind of building reads later into the fight. He caught on to that head kick where Figueroa was kind of entering into a crouch 
or he would kind of let his let his guard go when he was backing out of exchanges and he would lean off to his open side where Moreno could throw out that lead leg head kick. Uh, so he did a better job figuring out how to hit Figueroa, but he, he never really solved the issue of how how to exchange safely with Figueroa. And I think that's going to be a real issue in a rematch. As you guys mentioned, there's the durability aspect. Uh, both Moreno and Fig are absurdly durable. And that was just a ridiculously gutsy and impressive performance from Moreno in terms of toughness. And it's, you got to ask, like, can he hold up again? Can he take those shots in a rematch? Can he get into a firefight with Figueredo and still come out the other end okay? Uh, so I think if for him to beat Figueredo in a rematch, it would be prudent to try and add more mitigation tactics uh, instead of to figure out a way to deny exchanges and punish Figueredo for initiating them. I'd like to see some more kind of outside footwork pivoting around and changing directions on the cage so he can get back into open space uh, without letting Figueredo pressure him to the cage when he wants. So I think that would be good to see from Moreno in a rematch. Uh, from Fig, really, I think just doing what he's doing should work. Um, I try... Figueroa has is weird because he's like he makes bad decisions like you mentioned with the body locks but he also has a really really great um idea of how to adjust in a fight and how to just, just how to hurt the guy he's fighting so I trust Figueroa that if Moreno comes out with some new tactics that he can kind of get a read on that later in the fight and figure out how to punish him for it but I think the onus is kind of on Moreno to figure out something different because if the fight plays out like it did this time um, I think Figueroa will win pretty clearly again, and hopefully the judges would recognize it if it happens that way again. Yeah, I mean, I think even past Figueroa being such a good adjuster, it's something that our friend Taxerize has mentioned, is that he's very good at knowing what to do at the beginning of the fight. That is in terms of initial adjustments. As I mentioned with Perez, it was the body work to limit the volume. And here against Moreno, it was also body work, but he also came in with a very good idea of what to do against what many people thought Moreno's biggest threat would be, which would be his uh, pretty decent a lead hand in that, you know, he could jab to draw a counter put the, uh, that left kick behind it. He did some clever uppercut work against uh, a France, I believe, and played it off the hook against Jussie and Formiga. Everybody so, does clever work against Kaikara France. Sure. But <laughs> yeah. I mean, either way, it was a, it was a threat that I think people thought Figueredo would have to worry about. And that if uh, Moreno could just get him reacting to the lead hand, the variance in it and start building off it, will be something that Figueredo wouldn't be prepared for. But Figueredo came out pressuring hard, uh, drawing out the jab, uh, either pulling from it or cross-countering it from like the first minute of the fight. I think he visibly hurt him with the cross-counter in like the first round where uh, Moreno ate it and just kind of like, you could see him being hurt by it. But in general, yeah, I think Figueredo uh, had a very good idea of how to address that fight. And honestly, I'm not... I think there are a lot more concrete things for Figueredo to handle in that fight than there are for Moreno, where for Moreno, it's like become prime Juicia Formiga, uh, where for uh, Figueredo, it's get better. Like even against Moreno, I believe it was in the second round where he defended a body lock kind of decently, where kind of framed on the inside. Uh, and honestly, his strength margin gives him like a lot of margin for dealing with stuff like that if he's just a little bit smarter about it. Like, even the double overhooks thing, we've seen guys like Francisco Trinaldo just yeet guys from that. Uh, that's something that he wants to do. I guess that's an approach that would probably work for him. But, yeah, I think there's a lot more, like, specific concrete things for Figueroa to work on in terms of uh, having 
that kind of big, big, big advantage in the pocket. I'd like to see him uh, do the open side kicking a bit more because he did that against Moreno and got pretty much all of them for free, at least on the arms. Uh, kicked him in the head a, a couple times. Yeah, he so rocked him Moreno, with a head kick in round one, I think. Yeah, like Moreno kind of got a head kick blocked and Rogan was like, And then oh, Rogan God. freaked out. <laughs> and then um, Figueroa actually rocked him with a head kick and Rogan was pretty much silent. Yeah, Fig just straight up domed him with a head kick and it was all anical, like, ooh. Saucy one, but yeah, uh, Figueredo could probably get away with doing that more. I believe in round five kind of gives uh, an idea of if Figueredo had like a big cardio liability, which he did kind of gas out in round four. But if Figueredo did feel like he needed to um, address the cardio a bit more with his pacing, round four gives him a decent like kind of blueprint on how to do it. Especially if Moreno doesn't want to uh, walk into that fire over and over, he was able to play a bit more of a composed counter punching game. Um, I think. The biggest issue for Figueredo at this point in terms of career progression, because I don't see Moreno beating him in a rematch, is that if he plans to go up to 135, the wrestling is going to be very problematic against someone like Aljamain Sterling. Uh, and he's probably <laughs> yeah. going to get that kind of fight as soon as he goes up, which like if he goes up and he fights like Rob Font or something, like who cares? But against someone who, like, even a Peter Yan, who's smart enough to take the fight to that kind of area, uh, 135 is going to be pretty nasty for him, but it's going to be fun. And I think Figueredo Yen is still a fight that I'd really like to see. So, what else happened over the last couple months? This is a very Oliveira Ferguson was a relatively big deal, I would say. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Uh, I mean, it, it. I think the fact that it turned out to be a referendum on Ferguson was unfortunate for Oliveira because. As we mentioned on the live stream, it looked like something that Alvaro would do to many iterations of Ferguson. But uh, what did you think of the fight, Ed? Uh, it was kind of boring, <laughs> to be honest with you. It definitely wasn't wasn't what I expected. Uh, but it yeah, like grappling. I mean, yeah, I mean, it was it was mostly just Oliveira controlling top position and Ferguson getting nothing done the entire fight. Buggy choke. Nothing. You almost did a buggy choke. Almost, has anyone ever actually hit almost a buggy choke? Um, but yeah, I mean, there wasn't even anything like that damning uh, with regard to Oliver getting it to the ground. Like, yeah, Tony definitely looks flatter and less dynamic physically. Um, so you could say he's definitely in shot territory. I mean, he's he's looked less less physically for a couple of years now. Um, but I mean, the entries were things that I think Oliver could have always done. Uh, he had a good read on uh, on Tony's kicking game. Um, and, and countered, I, I think that was one of his three takedowns. He only had one takedown per round because he, Tony never got up. Um, but he had a good read on the kicks and, and countered that. I think he uh, caught caught a, a like a front snap kick and took him down off of that, yeah. uh, like tripped out the, the base leg. Uh, he had, I think he had a shot against the cage. They may have pressured him there. And I forgot what the other one was. But yeah, just, you know, reactive shots, as people like Ben Cohen pointed out, that Oliveira is pretty good at getting. Uh, typically against most opponents and Ferguson, when he does get taken down, it's usually because he throws himself forward into those kinds of situations. Uh, so nothing that was like, you know, crazy surprising on paper, just the way it looked though, just how little resistance Ferguson was really able to offer. Um, so I guess I kind of want to defer to Ryan. Did you feel that Oliveira's top game looked significantly improved or was it more of a case of Ferguson not really doing anything to actually like get up or threaten Sorry, we cut off there a little bit. Could you repeat the last, uh, like, 10 seconds? 
did Oliveira's top game look better against Ferguson or was it more a case of it's the same and Ferguson wasn't really doing the right things to make it a fight? Yeah, I definitely think Oliveira's top game looked better. I also think that Ferguson's bottom game has always been kind of significantly overrated in terms of like how how effective it's actually going to be against strong top players. Like we saw Kevin Lee mount him fairly easily in the first yeah. round and then he gassed out, which was fine. Uh, and Ferguson did a good job encouraging that. Like he had the, the feet on hips guard where he would post his feet on the hips, control the wrists, angle off and then elbow him. And that really messed with Lee's uh, gas tank, both enforcing him to work and just allowed Ferguson to rack up damage while doing it. But the thing with that is that that's the, the only really time we've seen him play that bottom game super effectively against an elite top player. And Kevin Lee never passed on the feet at all. Like he, he, I went back and watched his career in the UFC after that fight, and he didn't pass on the feet a single time in any of his fights. All of his passes were from the knees, which is pretty important because Ferguson's guard is based around creating distance with his feet and putting the frames there so you can't close in on him and hold him down. And then he'll, he'll use that when guys try to push in. He'll collapse the frames. He'll kind of draw his knees back to his chest. So you come forward and he can elbow you. He can set up submissions with that. And it just messes with guys that are trying to hold him down because they're constantly being like pushed and pulled away and they can't get that control over him. But passing from the knees really kills that or passing from the feet really kills that. And I think that's why I've never liked Ferguson in a fight with Habib because when he goes to that feet on hips guard and tries to play open guard, Habib's just going to stand, punch him and slice through the guard. And that's what Oliveira did here. He, he didn't hang around on the knees when Ferguson was creating distance and guard. He would just stand, stack, fold. He would like reach under Ferguson's legs and then stack him on his hips. So he'd end up like on his shoulders with his legs kind of folded back. And then from there, Oliveira could just walk around side control. He could t- work on taking the back or he could just punch him. And you saw a few times they ended up in that like reverse mount situation where um uh, they were like 69ing basically because he would do the stack pass and then Ferguson would try to kind of sneak out the back door. But yeah, so I think that was always going to be a bad fight in in respect to that because Oliveira isn't the type that's going to try and force his way through through your frames on the ground. He'll just work around them. But the, the way I was really impressed with Oliveira's top game and the way I think it's really improved is that he was so well put together. He wasn't if you watch his fight with like Ricardo Lamas or Anthony Pettis, he's super scrambly on the ground. He'll, when he, when he gets on top, he'll immediately try to make something happen. He'll go for a front headlock um, and he'll, he'll be willing to like pull guard or go to his back with it. Uh, Or he'll, when he takes the back, he'll immediately start trying to attack. And it gives you, gives guys opportunities to work out. He didn't do that here at all. He didn't sacrifice position to go for submission and well, it's not as exciting to watch as an Oliveira that's just diving on random shit and trying really hard to submit the guy. It's a lot more consistently successful at an elite level of MMA. And especially what I was impressed with is how he used his submissions to facilitate, facilitate his top control. So instead of giving up position with them, he would, he'd threaten a Kimura to like pass half guard or threaten a front headlock to force Ferguson back to his back. And he wouldn't hold on to the submission past the point where it became risky. He would just, if, if you're trying to turn into him, he'll go for a front headlock. 
either you keep turning into him and he gets to lock up the guillotine or you go back to your back and then he'll let it go because he realizes that holding top position is more useful in that situation than trying to sell out on a submission. And the, the moment that really sold this for me is when he was in mount and Ferguson kind of tried to buck him off and he hit, he hit that triangle where you, where you whizzer on one side and then uh, use their frame on the ground on the other side to swing the leg over and lock up a triangle. So he hit that when Ferguson was trying to bridge out a mount. And then he was working it on the ground or on his back. And instead of really committing to the submission and trying to submit him from his back, he he went with the sweep and swept Ferguson back to top position and then let go of the triangle and just chilled on top of him. So again, not super exciting. He's not like trying super hard to submit the guy, but that's what you want to see out of a submission artist in MMA is somebody who recognizes that he can use the submissions to facilitate that positional control and that he doesn't need to, to abandon position for them and risk uh, putting himself in inferior positions. And obviously Oliveira still has the submission chops where he right. can actually finish those because he almost broke Tony's arm in the first round. Mm-hmm. So overall, I was really impressed with Oliveira and I thought it was kind of, um, almost a culmination point of his game where we've seen him work through different phases where he was kind of mentally not all there. He would kind of fold when situations got tough or when he was taking a lot of damage. And we saw him be really scrambly and jumpy on the ground and willing to sacrifice position. And this is, I think what he is now is kind of the, almost the final point where his, his style really comes together and we see what his potential is. Um, in regards to his wrestling, that was interesting too, because I don't think we've really seen Tony against the body locker at all. And it's kind of weird in MMA, how you can like, just the nature of MMA makes it so that it's really hard to get an entire picture of somebody's skill set. Um, and we've seen Ferguson uses strong front headlock game against guys who like to shoot. Um, he can, he's very scrambly and he's good at kind of scrambling out of those shot takedowns as well but we've really never seen him fight a strong body locker. I don't think except Kevin Lee, who kind of took him down pretty easily with that. And so I think in terms of like where, where Tony was in this fight, did Oliveira win because he was shot or would he have always beaten him? I think that the body locks were always going to be a thing. And that was hard for Tony to deal with. Um, Obviously he was super physically declined. He's like 37 now. And like you said, he's looked fragile in quite a few of his recent fights. But I would like Oliveira to beat any version of Ferguson based on both the the sound top control and the ability to work around his frames and guard. And I think body locks are going to be generally harder for Tony to deal with than shot takedowns as well. Mm-hmm. I uh, that that's all. It's a very comprehensive breakdown. Uh, I was just enjoying that. But I, I was also thinking it's just nice uh, to have Oliveira in this form in the division because it with Khabib leaving the division is the same. You know what I mean? It's, it's all these strikers at the top and there's all these theories floating around based on what Khabib did to Connor and Dustin and Gaethje um, that like those guys are like completely useless as wrestlers or grapplers or whatever. And I think it's degrees, degrees of truth, obviously. And we have our own thoughts about where all those guys stand in those, those respects, but just to have Oliver there and uh, to continue to, to be able to provide that test. Like if he fought Dustin Poirier, if he fought Justin Gaethje, uh, if you fought Connor, whatever it is, um, Dan Hooker, you'd be able to see like, okay, you know, here's someone that is a competent wrestler, you know, powerful, athletic, uh, great top game, great submission threat. Like he's still offering those, 
those threats. And uh, he's uh, he's looked less less fragile, both mentally and physically. Um, he's that we talked about this Dan Tom on one of the previous shows. He's definitely grown into the weight class. Um, definitely looking thicker. Uh, and I think he's a, a full-fledged lightweight now and uh, a physical problem for the division as well. So uh, we just get to continue to see those matchups play out and maybe get some some more answers just about where these guys stand. I think I'm honestly, I'm most interested to see him fight Justin Gaethje uh, because that's a test, the, the ultimate test for both of them, right? You have a murderous puncher who's going to come out his body and his legs and you know try to break him uh, immediately. And you have someone that, is pretty good at finding their opportunities for to, to wrestle. And if it goes to the ground, you're gonna, that's going to be do or die for Gaethje. You're going to say, okay, is he confident whatsoever? Or is he just going to get, you know, is, is someone good at all? Is going to insta-sub him. Uh, and, and even if he did get submitted by Charles Oliveira, I wouldn't say that's like, oh, Gaethje doesn't have a ground game because we're talking about one of the best grapplers in the UFC at this point. But at the same time, I just, I'm interested to see those things uh, – those dynamics replay with those guys and, you know, knowing the UFC uh, he's going to fight down in contention now and, and to be a gatekeeper for the top five and never get a crack at any of them. Yeah. Speaking of that, Oliver was supposed to fight Michael Chandler on debut. That was actually mm-hmm. the plan before hooker. So you were actually spot on. Um, yeah. I mean, I think Oliveira against someone like Dustin Poirier would be relatively interesting as well, just because like if he gets a guillotine, that's just the ultimate reversion to the mean for Charles <laughs> Oliveira. But, I mean, yeah, there are a ton of winnable fights for Oliveira up at the top, especially since the title fight is uh, Poirier against McGregor, and both of them have looked various levels of grapplable in, in the past. So Oliveira can have success there, even if he could just get sunk with his defense not being the best still. I mean, oh, Ferguson didn't have a ton of success on the feet, but also that fight was like 85% on the ground. So it's tough to say. But, yeah, I mean, Oliveira's an interesting challenge. I, I think he'd be kind of interesting to see if uh, Nurmagomedov ever comes back. I'm not sure it'd be like a super winnable fight, like a grappler against It wouldn't. It really wouldn't. But, I mean, it's also not any less compelling than any rematch that's out there for Khabib at this point. So, yeah. Uh, there's really not... I guess we've pretty much done the UFC 256 recap show. Uh, there's not a ton else to talk about. There's... Um, the next card is in about two or three weeks and it's a pretty exciting one uh, max holloway against calvin cater and then like two other uh, okay well <laughs> i forgot i forgot leon was canceled but one other good fight that week but yeah i mean i guess now it's time to handle the patreon request from uh, mr lee since there's we're pretty much done with the recap stuff so the best unathletic fighters in mma was the request and uh i'd like to start this off by saying benil daryush is the greatest fighter of all time <laughs> That's fair. Uh, before we get into it, I, I would just, I mean, the uh, Evan in, in his request basically laid out what I wanted to say uh, originally. So he asked, he didn't say who are the best unathletic fighters in MMA, but he said, you know, the typical athletic mold that people think about is, you know, explosive, you know, fast, powerful people like that. So Jose Aldo, Chad Mendez, Yoel Romero, that type of dude. Um, Glad you snuck a white guy in there. Thank you. Thank you. Well, he's mostly white, partially white. Uh, I don't know. He might not be white at all. <laughs> but uh, his name is Mendez, but close enough. Uh, Mendez, at, at least it's not Joe Rogan. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm no Rogan, but maybe a little bit racist in this instance. <laughs> uh, but yeah, those, those are probably some of the most athletic fighters in the history of MMA. 
and they definitely fit the the very stereotypical popular mold of what an athlete is because people who watch sports uh at least you know north american fans they watch basketball they watch american football and that's what they're looking for they're looking for like their combine stats like how fast can you run a 40 or you know what do they bench or whatever you know what i mean how high can they jump uh whereas in mma all that stuff is that works a lot <laughs> it's very beneficial to be that type of athlete but it's not the only type of athlete and it's not the only type of athleticism that can be leveraged into wins and i think a lot of you know the the endurance athlete is also uh an unheralded formula the, the thing is and maybe it is a little bit of a racial bias uh where guys who are more endurance athletes who uh can put on volume and have good cardio and and can pace people and uh are durable uh they're usually it's all chalked up to hard work and it is chalked up to hard work, but you know, athletic ceilings go both ways. I mean, the, how high can you jump with training and jumping high is, is a sim there's similar caps on it to how good can your cardio be? Like if I work as hard as I possibly can and Brian works as hard as he possibly can, and we do the same exact things, we're going to have different cardio ceilings just by virtue of whatever our natural limits are. So, um, you know, things like cardio aren't really treated as athleticism, which I think is bogus. Um, so it should be, but uh, we definitely, you know, Evan specified, let's just talk about the guys who don't fit that traditional mold, the ones who aren't particularly fast or explosive or powerful. Um, so that the people that, you know, you would, you would say are unathletic, but you know, the whole time I'm going to be saying, but actually here are some of the physical attributes that are pretty, uh, you know, solid for, for X fighter, like Benil Dariush. Um, he is, he's not physically inept. Uh, he's he's physically talented you see him do things and, like he can kick hard he can punch hard he can grapple he looks strong when he grapples uh a lot of it might just be your eyes lying to you because his body is disgusting um it's just like no definition no ass uh it's just like you're like okay so maybe not he's not like flying all over the place so you're like all right whatever maybe not an incredible athlete but i think he he is pretty solid physically but you know just nothing that jumps off the page um, so I'm going to be, uh, playing devil's advocate pretty when much we're talking time. about, um, guys who are still very good in MMA, despite not being great athletes, I think it's usually going to end up being like the Dariush type that is, yeah. that's not athletically deficient, but is clearly a step below the elite. Like Dariush, he has power, but a lot of his power is a factor of both putting a lot of weight into his strikes and like throwing good kicks and punches. Um, but he, like you said, he's not a bad athlete. But I think that you can't really be a bad athlete and still be competitive with right. very good fighters. If you look at somebody like Chris Gritzmacher, like the guy who beat <laughs> up Joe Lozon. Lozon, yeah, he you can give him all the skills in the world and the best training, but I like what's he gonna do? Still gets got by Alexander Hernandez and like yeah, second. you're never gonna a guy like that. There's just a very hard ceiling on how good he's able to be in MMA just out of sheer physicality he's not going to have the power to compete with stronger strikers he's not going to have the the strength and athleticism to be able to defend takedown from very physical wrestlers uh, so i think that usually when we talk about the guys who are able to really make an athleticism disparity work uh, in the face of greater athleticism they're usually going to be guys like formiga and benel dariush who aren't at all deficient but who are just a clear step below the elite because if you're really just not an athlete at all, then you're probably not going to be in that conversation. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and it's another thing with lightweight specifically, where like pretty much every elite has like one really, really, really hard athletic spike. Where like, for example, someone like Dustin Poirier can just go for days, and Gaethje is like super durable and can go for days, and Khabib Nurmagomedov is like super strong in tie-ups and has really good cardio himself, and Ferguson yeah. pretty much lives off going for days, and <laughs> uh, and. Darius is like, you know, if you let him beat you up for a round uninterrupted, he gasses out, which is pretty normal. And he can't just like kill you with a bad punch the way someone like Dustin Poirier might be able to. So it's like, it's not anything super bad, but also in comparison to like a really good division where you need really good athletic attributes to work, it's going to be pretty tough. And I think Juicio Formiga is another good example, just because like his game isn't built to be that kind of scrambly type. And that's kind of what's defined flyweight throughout its entire existence is guys being able to just scramble forever. And Formiga might not have, like, the cardio necessarily to do that. He might. He also might not. But he's also built a game where he doesn't need to. Like, you know, Dustin Ortiz can theoretically scramble for days. But against Formiga, it just doesn't matter whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, Formiga, uh, just, you know, each of these guys is going to have at least one attribute that lets them do their thing. Um, And for Formiga, I mean, he he has a finesse game, right? So, you know, if there's a, a certain degree of agility required for that, he's definitely looked quick you know, executing on, on a lot of the things he does, but it's not like, Oh my God, what an athlete. Just like, yeah, that was fast. Um, he did that well, but a lot of that is like, it's the muscle memory. He's got drilled in super tight. Uh, so he can hit it reliably at, at full, what full speed looks like for him. Whereas someone like, like Habib, uh, people would freak out about Habib's athleticism. And it's like, on one hand, I think it's a little overrated. Like he's not blowing me out of the water with, uh, what he can do physically, but also like he can go a hundred percent, in, in pretty big bursts and still be doing things kind of badly mechanically and still like look like it's going super fast. And he's going super hard and uh, he's able to make things work and just push through and, and strong you and, and like bully you. And like someone like Formiga could never do that. Um, whereas like Yoel Romero can like just be chilling and then out of nowhere, jump 10 feet in the air and flying the, like Michael Chandler, for example, uh, in the Eddie Alvarez rematch, it's round four. And uh, round three was the round where he slowed down significantly and looked like he was gassing. And then very early on in round four, he, he hits Eddie Alvarez with an insane flying knee just from static standing position. So that's the kind of stuff that, that would separate them, as Ryan alluded to. Um, so we talked about Formiga. We talked about Benil Dariush. Um, somebody, and you might, uh, there's going to be a lot of grapplers on here, I would say. But people with uh, two guys with kind of similar athletic types, uh, I would say, are Damian Maya and Ben Askren. Um, and Maya, way more successful in MMA, I would say for sure. Uh, but those are guys that are kind of slow, uh, not not explosive in the least bit. Um, not particularly durable either. Well, Askren, Askren, pretty durable, actually. I changed my mind. Uh, but, you know, pretty decent cardio with, with, with some limits there. But not, not outstanding athletes, not jumping off the page in any respect. I'm sure they're both pretty strong in a grappling sense, as most grapplers are compared to people who aren't grapplers. Uh, and their grips must be pretty strong. But those are two guys that mostly had to like game, you know, their wins. And it wasn't really then like overwhelming people in any one stage, which is pretty impressive just because like, if you ever talk to a wrestler uh, who, who had a decent competitive experience and you ask them about what it was like to wrestle someone that was really good and like folk style, for example, uh, they'll tell you like, they probably, they weren't really doing anything different. You know, it wasn't any like they, they it was something you hadn't seen before when they, like the got top position. Um, they were just insanely strong and you couldn't get them off of you. And like once they got your wrist, they had it and you couldn't get it back. And they could just move you in whatever way they wanted. And that doesn't what it, that's not what it looks like with like Maya and Askren. You know what I mean? It's like they're just doing things. Oh, Askren less so. 
but you know it's because they're doing a lot of things correctly it's because they're you know moving through the sequences and, and they have a lot of you know skill in those areas so i think those are guys that were pretty successful um without any big athletic advantages i want to bring formiga back up for a moment because i think sure. uh, he's i think one of the best examples of somebody who who has a really successful game based around like mitigating what his opponent's doing so usually in mma just with the sheer variety of attacks that are available, we've seen a meta that tends toward volume and aggression. Um, it's generally much more uh, consistently successful to focus on your offense and just doing your thing rather than kind of reacting to the opponent and trying to trying to like take things away from them reactively. So you'll see guys like Max Holloway, kind of Max Holloway and Alexander Volkanovsky kind of really epitomize that that meta in MMA where volume and aggression and continually doing your thing over and over again results in a lot of success. And Formiga is kind of the direct opposite of that. And in a lot of ways, that's a response to that meta where guys have been become very aggressive and volume focused and Formiga can't really play that game because he doesn't have the durability. He probably doesn't have the cardio to throw a ton of volume and he's not a hitter at all. So he's if he's going to be exchanging with guys, he has to be very careful about when and how he does it. Uh, and looking at his game really, really kind of gives you that the like the principles of how you can kind of play that game. He uses positioning on the feet very effectively to deny exchanges and to control distance. So if you watch any Nova Uniao striker fight, they're always very good at positioning. And Formiga always has his foot trained on his opponent's center line. He's always in position to defend, hit, and counter. And he's great at using proactive and reactive defense to limit exchanges. So if when guys are coming at him and trying to exchange, he will he'll keep himself in position to defend and respond. And he's great at instead of getting into getting drawn into exchanges and punching with guys, he'll throw one or two punches and then either pivot away. Uh, change direction to to exit the exchange and prevent the opponent from following up or he'll enter the clinch he'll he has great reactive clinch entries uh the one he hit on zach makovsky is one of my favorite entries into the clinch i've seen in mma where he was in it was a southpaw orthodox matchup makovsky was a southpaw he was angling out towards makovsky's open side to draw out the rear hand and he just slipped outside of it and pivoted right to his back. It was absolutely gorgeous. And then he hit that sick Vieira roll oh right God, after. <laughs> so he does like really, really slick reactive entries like that. Uh, he has great reactive takedown entries as well. So everything in his game is kind of based around preventing the opponent from feeling comfortable opening up. And you really saw that in the Figueroa fight where Figueroa is just the absolute opposite end of that ex- spectrum ridiculous dynamism uh doesn't even give a shit about what the other guy's doing he's just gonna do his thing and completely ignore you you can punch him in the face he does not give a fuck he'll just take it and rip your body and he has the durability to make that work like it almost doesn't matter what you're hitting figurito with he does not give a shit and formiga didn't he didn't try to try to go with it and hit him harder he he took the opposite tack and just nullified his offense which we've seen from the moreno and the alex perez fight is not something that many other guys even try to do or have the skill set to do and it left figueredo kind of confused about how to attack him 
you saw him consistently getting into those reactive clinch entries and using positioning on the outside to, de- to, not, to deny any kind of exchanges or opportunities for Figueroa to hit him hard. So I think Formiga, um, Asuncao, Rafael Asuncao is also a great example of using those kind of mitigation tactics to prevent stronger, faster, harder punchers from creating the situations in which they can really leverage those advantages. Uh, the, the fight between Asuncao and Font is a perfect example of how to do that with boxing. He stood just outside Font's jabbing range and consistently made Font jab into his outstretched rear hand to give him a false distance. Then when Font tried to close distance with a double jab or by running into the pocket, Riga would just throw one counter bunch and pivot off. So he very effectively limited a very good boxer, a very good combination puncher and pocket operator, completely denied him the opportunity to exchange at all. And I think that's kind of the the height of somebody, Asuncao and Formiga are kind of the the apex of guys with significant athletic disadvantages relative to the elite of their division, using clever tactics to manage to to allow them to still compete with elite fighters. Yeah, I mean, and I, I know Saram has a massive boner now. A ton, yeah, <laughs> a, a literal ton. But yeah, I think Asuncao is an interesting example just because Bantamweight has like a, such a wide range of different sorts of athletes and we've seen Asuncao face pretty much all of them. Um, for example, for uh, Pedro Munoz had some of that Figueredo type appeal where you could just hit him and he would just keep walking forward and kicking your legs. And we saw Asuncao uh, keep him off with like these clever clinch entries and turning to the fence and uh, the inside stance, or the inside angles from open stance thing that he does to pretty much everyone. Uh, the big output athlete like TJ Dillashaw and Rob Font and uh, Marlon Marias, who is kind of like a blend of, of a big power athlete and an output athlete, kind of. And pretty much everyone's look kind of useless. Either now. Some style. Yeah, now. Jesus Christ. But, yeah, I guess we should talk about Rob Font just completely killing Marlon Marias because I know you'll enjoy that. Yeah, that also happened. Yeah, that was fun. That was fun. That's a good example and, of uh, what the disadvantages of being a traditionally athletic fighter because with those kind of attributes, you can really build your game, you know, with them, like as a huge part of your success. Whereas guys that really didn't have them as much, they had to develop their skill set other ways and uh, they age better. They age more gracefully. Uh, we, we talked about Tim Means before the podcast when we were brainstorming fighters. That's someone who was pretty solid at, at, in his prime at his peak. He's really not that much worse now than he was then. Uh, you can tell he's older and it's harder for him to do things, but it doesn't look all that different. He's still able to do most of what he did because uh, his game was really never athletically leveraged Whereas someone like Marlon Marais. Uh, well, first of all, his durability is pretty shot, um, but that, that's a good example is he didn't become the defensive fighter he needed to be because he could, you know, scare people off of firepower or you know, get out of the way or, or whatever yeah. you want to say, but yeah, interesting, interesting contrast. Yeah. I mean, I think you could look at a fight like Austin South Font now and a Sun South probably wouldn't win because he's also pretty much shot at this point but he'd also have a couple more moments than I think Marlon Marais would just because he's you know uh, a bit more accustomed to dealing with someone with greater firepower who's, who might just try to run towards him the way Font did uh, where Marais is probably going to struggle in most of the rematches he <laughs> at this point like against the Jimmy Rivera might just kick him in the head again but if that went longer I'd still be pretty concerned uh, more than I was the first time so yeah 
It's, Sunsound's been around for a lot longer than Mirai's too, so him like lasting longer is even more pronounced. Mirai's started in 2007, and a Sunsao started in 2004. And you can already see Mirai's starting to drop off way heavier than a Sunsao. Yeah, I mean, a Sunsao fought like an old man for his entire career. That's like pretty much the explanation. <laughs> <laughs> like he never had the athletic attributes to lean on, but even if he did, like he a Sunsao was never like chinny or like super slow in like exchanges or anything. But he never fought like he wasn't which meant that when he did get kind of slower and less durable, uh, aside from the Cody Garbrandt fight, could kind of get away with doing what he was doing. So, I mean, even against, even, even if you look at a fight like Corey Sandhagen, right? Like if Marlon Moraes didn't have the uh, volume edge over a guy, he just didn't really know what to do or how to win that fight. Whereas some side, he was used to that. And when he was fighting a, a dynamo who would just keep throwing things at him, he kind of had some ideas, even if he got overwhelmed late. So, yeah, I mean, Formigan and Asunsao were really good examples at the elite level of small divisions that have uh, attributes that probably wouldn't help older fighters otherwise. Uh, who else? Roxanne Modafferi. I think the that's hardest working in fighter in mixed martial arts history. <laughs> there, there, there's someone that is pretty much, and, you know, I'm not saying she is very skilled. As a grappler, she seems solid. Uh, but you know, that is someone who, uh, not only would you say that she is, she's unathletic, but she actually seems to be a little bit, uh, you know, working with like almost like a handicap physically. Like she's had to learn how to move her body in a lot of ways. It's like probably someone that didn't play sports at all growing up into, into adulthood. Uh, and MMA training was probably her first foray into physical things uh, maybe she grappled in, in some form, but yeah, that's, a that's a great example of someone that really committed themselves. And I know that she like works really, really hard with strength and conditioning and like becoming functional, <laughs> you know, physically. Uh, so it is possible. It is possible for people to improve physically. I mean, like RDA, for example, if you watch his early UFC fights, uh, not much, not much there then versus his prime, like an absolute physical beast. And you can say that steroids, but you still have to do the work to get the use out of the steroids, you know what it's I mean? It's not so. like the guys he's fighting are probably clean anyway. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. He's fighting the place. There's no way. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we see people improve their, their athleticism, their physicality all the time. Like Dustin Poirier, uh, for example, didn't, couldn't, couldn't bench like the bar. I, I don't know what it was. <laughs> Phil, Phil Daru, uh, his strength and conditioning coach said he like, couldn't do like really basic uh, physical things before they started working together. And it was like, well into his UFC it was like when he moved up to lightweight that's when he started lifting and stuff and that's when he became more of like more of a hitter you know more more of a physical presence so like people improve in that respect um it's just like how do you spend your time you know it does that you know do you have to learn how to fight a different way it's just it's interesting um it's an interesting topic so you wonder like the people who are we consider unathletic uh a lot of the time we're just looking at their bodies and figuring that out <laughs> just from the eye test um, which doesn't work if you're looking at like Kelvin Gastelum, Gastelum or Fedor or like Cain Velasquez. Those are very athletic people that just have body fat. <laughs> DC. Yeah. DC. Yeah. Yeah. Extremely athletic. Uh, if fighters. you want to like examples of guys who don't look athletic at all, but are ridiculously athletic, look at sumo in Japan. Mm. The, the speed with which those guys operate at like fucking 500 pounds is ridiculous. I don't watch sumo, but yeah, I'm sure it's incredibly demanding. It's very fun. Not if I turn sure down, you think I would like it, but I, ha I haven't gotten yeah, it. They're like 10-second fights. Yeah. yeah, guys like Hakuho, they're 
absurdly fast, absurdly agile, and obviously they're doing all that at a a weight and fat percentage way higher than M any MMA fighters. So you definitely can't just rely on looking at guys. Some if they look like uh, like a melting fridge, like Ben Askren, that that's one thing. But just because they have fat content doesn't mean that they aren't super athletic. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure there's a parallel between or like there's like the inverse to true where you look at someone super jacked and they're actually not athletic at all. Probably like the closest is just guys who aren't good at fighting and gas out super quickly. That's the KSW like freak show fights of like the guys who are like just bodybuilders and have no like athletic carryover from that. Like they don't do anything functional. But I, I don't I think we've seen anyone like that in the UFC. Oh, yeah, for a long time. I think Shirkov tried to they tried to sign him, but he immediately popped or something like that. <laughs> or they just knew he was gonna pop. One of those. Then he things. got his ass whooped by the best middleweight on the planet. Magomedish me love. The goat. Usually, people like in the past fifteen years, I don't think there's been anyone in the UFC who has like big muscles or like looks really strong or muscular that isn't also some sort of athlete. You know what I mean? It, it usually correlates. So. Yeah. Do you remember that old UFC fight between Brad Kohler and Steve Judson? Oh, the one yeah, where the guy that. does like the lunging punch and yeah. knocks the other one out immediately. Yeah. They're, they they're like kind of like that fingers. with it. The, they look like they have the massive Warhammer style pauldrons on their shoulders, <laughs> but it's just their shoulder muscles. Oh, we talking pauldrons? We're getting into <laughs> <laughs> That's why they weren't very good because they had the pauldrons on. Massive Twitter war about pauldrons. <laughs> yeah, uh, this conversation evolved. Yeah, I mean, I guess someone like Bilal Muhammad's a decent example, just someone who's. Uh, had success against guys who uh, outmatched him athletically. Like, for example, the Jeff Neal fight was a pretty good example of that, where uh, Muhammad was, like, at a huge disadvantage in terms of hitting power and even, like, technical skill. And he just, you know, figured something out in terms of the body work. Uh, every heavyweight, almost. Not really, but at least in comparison to, like, lower divisions, a lot of them tend to be worse athletically. Um, I think uh, another important point to raise about athleticism is that um, – even though in a lot of ways, people who aren't as athletic have to de develop tactics to compensate for that and have to be kind of craftier than athletic people, being super athletic really increases your skill ceiling. There's a lot of stuff that if you look at the absolute height of any combat sport, those people are going to be very athletic. And partly it's because athleticism just makes everything easier, but it also just allows you to be straight up better and more skilled in ways that lacking that athleticism doesn't. Like if you look at the stuff somebody like Jose Aldo or Habib does, on one hand, it's because they're like genuinely among the best technicians MMA has ever seen at what they do. But in many ways, their athleticism allowed them to develop that skills and to employ that. You can't you just can't do what Aldo or Khabib is doing if you don't have that athleticism. You can know how to defend takedowns. You can know how to pivot away from exchanges. Uh, you can know how to limp leg out of single legs and everything, but you are absolutely not going to be able to employ those techniques at a high enough level if you don't have that athleticism. And when you can do it, it allows you to build on top of that and kind of develop uh, develop on those skills and really push the cutting edge of what those skills and tactics can look like in MMA. So I think that when you, when you talk about guys that really change the metagame or introduce things to MMA that were before seen as not, not viable or not possible, those guys are going to necessarily be the, like among the more athletic because it's just, 
those guys are just built differently. They can do things that other people can't. <laughs> I'm just built different. But yeah, I mean, you can even look at like, for example, we talked about the volume lifting thing that guys like Asamsa do. And Jose Aldo did a good deal of that in his prime, just better against better competition, more reliably because he is right. and part a crazy of that is athlete because... who can just scare people off. Yeah, if you're trying to employ volume on Aldo, he can just smack you really fucking hard in the head. And then we've seen a lot of guys go go out there with the intention of making him work and pressuring him, and they get hit, and then they realize that's a stupid fucking idea. Well, now he does it to the body. Yeah, he pulls up your guard and just smacks you really hard in the body and tells you to go away. It works pretty well. <laughs> Old Aldo is still like top 20... Uh, Athletic fighters in the UFC, I would say he's still very, very physically competent. He just, you know, gasses out faster. <laughs> so he can't do anything anymore. Yeah. Four you meaningful me things sad. per round. He won his last fight, Ryan. You can you can be happy for a little bit. Yeah, but there's gonna be another one. It's probably <laughs> gonna get gonna be against like Aljo. Five if, round main event against Rob Fong. Uh, Cody Cody Garbrandt called him out, and I think that's actually kind of a safe fight. So I hope they do that one. What if it's five rounds? Love it. I mean, what's Cody Garbrandt going to do over five rounds? That would be different. You know, if he's going to lose, he's going to lose pretty, in the last pretty two quickly. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, also I don't think Cody's going to like try to put on a five-round performance against him. I mean, also if like all those just we've been worried about his defense since like the Marias fight. So if Cody yeah, just does Cody ever like just possible. like get get in your face and throw a one-two? I don't think he does that. That's true, but he could just like run towards Aldo and Aldo's like, oh shit, get double it. <laughs> Bitch. Oh. <laughs> Cody Lack drops him. <laughs> he could. He's capable. He's capable of doing that. Jeez. Now All this right. has just turned it into us being sad about Aldo. I'm happy. Yeah, I mean. Gonna be on a win streak. Yeah, I think that's the that's the end of the podcast. We're pretty much done with it. Probably. Probably. Uh, thanks oh. for the request, Evan. Uh, subscribe to the Patreon for more shit posting like this. Yes, exactly. And uh Next podcast will be about year-end awards, either declaring what they are or just talking about contenders based on if we've published them yet. <laughs> but then uh, soon, soon we will have our we'll have our our Cater Holloway podcast, and we'll have the Cater Holloway panel. Um, and Dan Albert is going to be on that. Oh. Get ready for that. Wait, there's another Dan. We're just replacing our old Dan. We have like at least six Dans in the queue. There is uh, entirely too many Dans. Ready to call up if we lose any. It's definitely our most robust uh, you know, squadron. We have like a fourth people. string Dan. <laughs> the Dan power rankings. That have the guy on the, on the minor league team that we have to fill out a waiver to call up. Dan Tom is, is our highest ranked Dan, but he's also very expensive. So we can afford. I think Dan that's Alberts. why Danny quit. Because we he knew he couldn't him. compete with Dan Tom. <laughs> There are no more Dannys. Danny is dead. It's just Dan now. Yeah, he, he upgraded or downgraded, however you want to view it. Daniel, I think, is is the worst option of the three. No one wants to be Daniel. Nobody under the, the age of 30 is named Daniel. That's that's correct. They're technically named Daniel. They just don't call themselves that. I was Eddie for most of my life. I upgraded to uh, to Ed. Now that I'm Eddie a, doesn't I'm really a... seem fitting for you. That's funny because, you know, people who hear that I am called Ed in other places don't see that on me either. Huh. So it's really it's really whatever like very I, clear Ed. whatever impression I, I give to you is what you think I am. Yeah, how do I have the luxury of nicknames? <laughs> that 
Yeah, so I, I suppose that's it. Uh, this has gone pretty long. We've just been shitposting for about like, three quarters of it. What the people come for. That's true. Yeah, you come for the intelligent fight discussion, stay for the pauldron memes. Yeah, so uh, check out next time for the year-end stuff. And probably the time after that is going to be Cater Holloway, right? I don't yes. know the schedule, probably. Yeah, that's yeah. the next UFC event. Yeah, so uh, thanks for joining us. We'll see you later. Bye-bye.